Let Me Tell You a Story, podcast number 56. It was the best of times. It was the worst of times. Call me Ishmael. It was the age of wisdom. Some years ago. Never mind how long it was. Never mind it is how long it was. You don't know about me without you. Welcome to Let Me Tell You a Story with hosts Steve and Becky Lyle. Settle back into your seat, step onto your favorite fitness machine, or lace up your walking shoes, and enjoy stories from a variety of genres and authors. Hi, this is Steve. Hi, this is Becky. Welcome to our podcast. Although we've moved into the holiday season, we're stepping back from Christmas readings due to an opportunity to interview Jody Coles and to read from her third novel, When Darkness Comes, which was released at the end of October. Jody Coles, world traveler, is talking with us from Istanbul today about her most recent novel, When Darkness Falls. When Darkness Falls is your third book. We'll talk about that in a minute. But what about your other two books? What inspired you to write them? Well, I, uh, I had a dream about my first novel, and I had been trying, I'd written a couple of short stories, but I had been trying to work up the nerve to write a novel for a while. So I had a really interesting dream, and I started writing, and that was, the, that was sort of how I started the, the, the first one. Um, yeah, I had, a, I had an aunt who taught in seminary, and she told me, that believers in China were praying for believers in America to be persecuted. And I sort of chewed that over for a while, and, and I had this dream that was kind of the root of, of the first novel, and that's how I started whacking away at it. I really enjoyed that book. You did a good job on it. Good. Yeah, it had my interest. And it's so, um, or really... Plausible, I guess, is word. As we see things changing, um, it's not beyond reach, really. <laughs> and the name of that book is, um, I had to get it to look at it, <laughs> The Minor Protection Act. Yes. Right. Okay. Yeah. So the second book. The second book uh, is called Thirst, and it's an allegory. And I, probably the inspiration is that in my in my current job and in my previous job, I, I work for an international aid organization, and I I used to travel uh, all over North Africa and the Middle East and Indonesia, India, um, and when I started that job, and then maybe for the first year and a half of travel, I would say I probably saw more pain and tragedy. Than I had in a in a short time, uh, but a lot of it than I had seen previously. And I think that I, I wrote Thirst one summer when I was I was able to work in Switzerland one summer to avoid the heat. Somebody offered me a place to work, so I wrote it on Sunday mornings instead of going to German church. And it was sort of me processing through some of the tragedy and and pain I had seen on my on my trips. Interesting. Yeah. Do your novels have a specific message you'd want readers to take away? Probably. <laughs> 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 I 
You know, mm. I really, I get a big kick out of when people read Thirst and they ask me, you know, does this mean this? Does this, does this mean this? The, in the allegory of it, I, I really enjoy hearing what people think about that story. I think if there were any kind of message, it would probably be how I feel in life, that I, I want to communicate that we live in a broken world, but God is big enough to be beside us. Mm. And and he's big enough to help us through. There's there's just a lot of tragedy and pain in, in the world that, you know, happens to us and that we do to ourselves. And I think I, you know, I grew up in the church and I had a different image of God growing up in the church. Kind of, you know, you follow a particular set of rules and he was sort of obligated to give you a, you know, he loves you and he has a wonderful plan for your life. So then when your life goes off course. So I think I think if if there were any message it would be that God is is big enough to to meet us in our darkest moments and he's worth knowing. Would that be your message for your protection. minor protection act? It it could fit there. Yeah, I think I was in a you know, I wrote that like 15 years ago and oh. I think I was in a little bit of a different I mean I was certainly living a, a different I was working in a cubicle in a large corporate office and I was in California and I was the only in a very large office I was the only follower of Jesus that I knew about and I was sort of surrounded by these comments that your beliefs make you a bigot and a homophobe and intolerant and so I think part of my first book was a reaction to that was processing through that, that what might this look like if it goes another step or two further? So it's been interesting watching in the, you know, I think it came out in 2005. So watching in the 10 years hmm. since that it's just gone more that way has been really interesting. I still get people who email me and say, hey, <laughs> did you hear about this? It's just like your book. <laughs> it's very cool. <laughs> That's neat. So with speaking of that first book, you had a very innovative approach to marketing for the first one. So can you tell us a bit about that and if you've used that same approach with the other two books? That's a super kind word choice of you. Some people call it nuts or crazy. <laughs> <laughs> um, I was, like I said, I was working in a cubicle for seven or eight years. And I... At the time that the book came out, I had felt like God was asking me to do something different for maybe six months, and I wasn't sure what it was. So I, I wrote in my Bible one Sunday, okay, I'm going to quit my job at the end of the year, and I'll do whatever. I don't know what it is. And I lost my job out of the blue the next Tuesday after that. So I felt like it was really kind of God to prepare me. And I and so I took my retirement and I bought an old beater RV and I went around the country kind of on a book tour and it was a total riot. I had this beater 30-foot RV with my book title on the side of it and I just went plonking off into the great unknown and it was a it was really an experience. I um I only sold enough books to basically pay for gas and food along the way, but well, that's good. It was, a great, it was a great experience. It was real. I mean, it was really difficult for, for some things were very difficult, but overall, it was great. So no, I have not repeated that. Because, you know, I think once in a lifetime promotional craze, crazy trip. <laughs> 
Well, that's ingenious, really, or creative, uh, whatever you want to call it. I, I, yeah. Why not? It was just a little too early because it was. I started blogging, and there was no social media, mm-hmm. and you know, a lot of people didn't really know what a blog was. So I think it'd be a lot more maybe productive to do something like that now. But now I'm in a different lifestyle, and you know, calling over Skype is how I'm gonna. <laughs> people about it so did you tour the entire country when you did that pretty much pretty much i i did kind of a uh i did a first test run and i went down across oregon down through california and then back up through nevada and then i spent christmas with my family and then i took off for the south and yeah i made it all the way to the east coast and then uh and then came back along the north it was i think maybe about 10 months (laughs) Wow. (laughs) Fun. Also, it helps that you were single at that point in your life, too. (laughs) Did you ever get feedback from your cubicle co-workers? Like, whoa, did you hear about Jody? what she did? She's traveling the world with with an RV or any kind of... You know, I had a a good friend in my last department. I worked in several departments there, and she was always real thrilled to follow whatever I was doing. But... (laughs) I didn't really keep in touch. I think I went back with my RV one time to the office, and everybody just thought I was a little bit crazy. (laughs) (laughs) I couldn't understand. (laughs) Yeah. But they were probably jealous. (laughs) Well, they probably were. But, you know, it wasn't wasn't like the smartest, um, you know, most fiscally responsible, putting your retirement away and, you know, guarding your salary and all that. And I think that was more the typical norm for my colleagues. Yeah. (laughs) What you're supposed to do. Yeah. 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 I'm not a big fan of what you're supposed to do. (laughs) Yeah. Right. You and your husband developed an online tool to help people learn to speak and read English. Why don't you tell us about it? How does it work? How much does it cost? What's the URL? Tell us about that. It is, thanks for asking. It's called EvdayEnglish.com. Another lovely <laughs> marketing project. We um, we had, my husband is an English teacher when we moved here, and there's a little bit of trouble getting um, visas. So we decided to start our own company. And so it's Evday English. Evday means at home in Turkish. So it's English at home from our lovely home in Istanbul. So basically, it's a membership um, video-based website, and for $10 a month, you get access to our uh, full video content. So we do video, we do short videos, five minutes or less, and for you to learn English. So we've just, we're just getting ready to finish. We're hoping by the end of the year to have our first level finished, and then we'll start advertising for clients. We haven't wanted to advertise until we had a full level done. So probably doesn't do any good to tell people how to access the website quite yet then. Oh, it's open now. You can look at it now. It's open and we've got 10 lessons up there. Oh. And our first five lessons are free so that people can see it and, and see what we're about. So we've, we actually have some clients. We just haven't been advertising yet because we don't want to we don't want to put too much into advertising until we had a, a, a complete level. But people are looking at it now. Mostly our friends, to be honest, because <laughs> we are learning Turkish, and I previously learned Spanish, so we know how difficult it is to learn a language. So we're trying to be as humorous as possible. So we 
do really ridiculous skits at the beginning of every lesson. And so that's probably the main uh, customer base that's looking at it right now is our friends and having a big old laugh at us. (laughs) Well, we saw the uh, the promo video and, you know, it's great. I mean, it's a lot of fun until you can learn, but still have fun doing it. Yeah. Yeah. I think anybody who's tried to learn a foreign language knows how difficult it can be. And you have to do grammar and you have to do you know, vocab and pronunciation and all of that, but any humor that you can sort of ratchet in there is is very helpful. (laughs) Yes, I can understand. So, so what's the URL? It's Evday English. It's E-V-D-E English.com. We'll try to write that on the website when we post this also. So, you have more people laugh at you. And now I know how to say it. Every time I look at that URL, I say, how do you say that? Oh, ye. <laughs> See, now you, you already know your first Turkish word, so you can start learning Turkish. So what is your favorite thing about writing? Probably the moment at a, that usually happens about 2 a.m. when I'm trying to sleep, and I have the brainwave about some plot point I've been noodling for a few days and I have to get up quickly and now that I'm married I have to dash into the other room or very carefully try and peck it out on my phone but I think it's something about the, the creative moment when there's I have the moment that something comes together and I can see the story and I can see the connection and it's 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 really fun I, I love that yeah, part. It doesn't happen, you know, very often. It's <laughs> really fun. Exciting moment, yes. So yeah. what's your least favorite? That's very easy. I have a really good friend who is fantastic at PR, and for years I've been trying to get her to be me in public. She would be a fantastic author, marketing and everything, and having just the right thing to say, and then I could just be the ghostwriter in, in back. Yeah. But she won't do it. This is my least favorite. I hate marketing. <laughs> <laughs> oh, true, true. Yeah. It's a challenge. But times like this, when you can be one-on-one with an author, yes. those are always yes. fun. And book yes. signings and just being with other authors, I think, is always yeah. a good time. And, of course, readers who enjoy your writing. <laughs> that yes. helps. My guess is that you, and you said it was 15 years ago when you wrote your first novel. Um, So you're fairly young. So do you have any advice for first-time authors or young authors? Boy, I would probably say just keep writing. I think um, actually finishing something is a, is a big challenge. You know, it's, it's hard to get past you know, the occasional burst of energy and you, ha- and you write for half a day and then you don't, you don't look at it for six months. So I think keep writing. Gosh, I think it's easier now than it ever has been to, to get your stuff out there and let people take a look at it and, and see what they think and get feedback. I think it's, it's easier than, I mean, it's certainly easier than it was for my first book, trying to talk to people and, and get social media feedback. But I, yeah, I would say keep writing. Just keep, if you, if you have something that is burning in your heart that you want to say, try to get it out. So are you able to write every day? Heavens no. <laughs> I think I'm going to write every day. 
and many things get in my way. Yeah, I, I keep thinking, I, I read an article about John Grisham like 20 years ago that he wrote every morning from 6 to 7 on his way before he went to work, and I thought, that just is great, and then I'll try it, and I get one or two days in, and it doesn't work. I'm, I'm much more of a passionate, in-the-moment kind of writer, and I have to be in the mood, and so that's why it takes me five years to finish a book. <laughs> oh, the challenges, I know. Let's talk about your most recent book, uh-huh. more than one question. And then the name of that is When Darkness Falls. So you might tell us your inspiration and just anything you'd like to share about that. And then Steve and I will read a few, probably the first two or three chapters of that, and give people a taste of it. Tell us what you want us to know about When Darkness Falls. You probably got scared there. You thought she was going to say, answer these questions and then we're going to sing. <laughs> <laughs> As I said, I, my job when I was writing When Darkness Falls is I was, uh, I was traveling around for my international aid company, and I, I did video promotion. So I would go to our aid uh, humanitarian projects, and I would film the projects and then create videos uh, for our donors. And to, We used to get funding from um, foundations in Europe and the United States. And I traveled in some places that were not exactly secure. And I think I had a few times where things could have gone a different direction if if God had wanted it to go. But my imagination is such that I uh, could easily imagine things going haywire, going a different direction. And so part part of, a big part of writing it was, I think, me trying to process through some of my fears and and try to think about what it would really look like or what would be a realistic scenario. The book is about an international aid worker getting kidnapped in North Africa. And it starts out in Mauritania, which was one of my first trips and was very, was one of those security situations that was unfortunate. But so the book is totally fiction, but it's definitely influenced by those years when I was traveling and I think trying to, it's something that I have been thinking about for years, just trying to show what I firmly believe and demonstrate what I believe, which is that the world is is a rough place and God is big enough to walk with us through it. Mm-hmm. And so thinking through difficult and horrible and tragic scenarios, I have, I have had difficult and tragic scenarios in my life and and dark places, and God has come and met me there. And I think that it's because of those meetings, because of Him coming to meet me in the dark, that I know who He. I know better who He is, and so I think I. I just wanted to demonstrate that, demonstrate who I know Him to be, and 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 what I don't know how He might meet us, and certainly how He goes after other people. I think he goes after um, people in other countries in, in, in diff- a little bit different ways than he goes after Americans. And mm. that was sort of a long stream of consciousness. I'm sorry. This is <laughs> no, no. This is that's uh, this is answering the question. That's yeah. great. Well, and and you accomplished that in the book, which is uh, um, just a fascinating read. 
which I will share some details with our listeners after we read. It's an exciting book. It's, you know, exciting in some ways, terrifying in some ways. And yet you do get the message across that God is present and active all over the world. And he, I think it's, I think it's important for us to remember that he has something for us to do in the midst of even the most difficult circumstances. It's not like we tripped into it, into this because he wasn't paying attention. He, he arranged this exact set of circumstances and, and, and he put you there. And even if it's what might be the worst thing that's ever happened in your life, he wants to show you his love in that moment. And he wants to teach you something in that moment and be beside you. But he also wants you to, to do something and he wants you to love others and, and, you know, incarnate what you know to be true about him. I think we, I mean, I certainly write to remind myself as well. We forget in the darkest moments that, that there's an assignment as well. Mm-hmm. And I think it helps. It, it, it helps in some ways to, to view some of these dark moments through that light. That there's, some, there's a way that we can proactively um, act and 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 state with our with our lives and our words and our beings what we believe and even when control is taken away from us in some extent. I don't know if it's just Americans that's so easy to have the victim mentality, like oh no, yeah. this happened to me. <laughs> Worst yeah. thing ever. Yeah, it's certainly been a privilege. I mean, a real privilege for me to be able to do travel outside of the United States and and see how different cultures operate and see the level of tragedy and the, the, just the sheer volume of tragedy in other countries and, and see that God is there and that you can, you can worship him and with joy and with your full heart under tremendous stress and tremendously difficult circumstances. And there's a, I don't know, there's a quality to worship that I don't, I'm not sure you can get to until you've had everything stripped away and, and you're there worshiping at the total bottom of the pit, you know, and saying, thy will be done and show me your glory. And it's a, it's a, it's a privilege to be able to, to live those experiences and to, to see them in, in other parts of the world and how people react and how believers worship him a little bit differently in some in some ways. Oh, that's great. <laughs> that's cool. Mm. Yeah. With Saeed, that was an it seemed like an odd set of circumstances, you know, to, to go back thinking, oh, I can do more good and then get really double crossed. I guess is how it happened. They said, oh, no, that's not what you're going to do this time. We're going to take care of you. But even in that, I think you're saying that it's possible. In fact, not not just possible, but you can just, you know, honor, praise God and consider it what God wants. Is that I right? Think I think that's absolutely true. I think I think that we have we have presented God as like fire insurance believe in God and you'll get into heaven and not so much to do with real life and life is messy and, and you open your eyes in the morning and you see that it's a broken world and there's people that are hurting all around you 
And we have the opportunity to give platitudes or we have the opportunity to say, look, this is what I lived through and this is how I lived through it. There was a really horrible thing that happened to me. It's not exactly what you're living through, but it's similar. And this is, this is how God met me. And I think that's the only way to show that who God is. Otherwise, it's just, why don't we all come to church together and sing songs and, and not be honest about what happens outside those walls. But we all know what happens outside those walls. It's messy and it's painful. And even if you're in the United States, this land is plenty. There's all kinds of things going wrong and hurt that people are going through. And what a different image I think we can give when we are honest about where who God is and where he has met us and how he's helped us through. That's what the world needs. It needs it needs people who are honest about about their past and, 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 and that everything's not great and that God is enough. And God's enough to, to, to walk with you through it and he's enough inside that dark moment. He's enough for you. And then we comfort others with the comfort we've received. I mean, I just think that I think that the sometimes the God that we present the God we try to sell it's he's, he's so much bigger and mm-hmm. and if he's not that big if he's not big enough to rescue us to sit with us in those dark moments then why do we even worship him I mean why would you worship a teeny little God who's really all he can do is is get you in the gate at the very last second mm-hmm. you know but he's amazing And he's present, and he comes in when you need him the very most, and he's there when things are going well and you're sort of, you know, thinking you don't really need him and and everywhere in between. He's absolutely worth living for and knowing. And inside this broken world that we live in. Excellent. Well, (laughs) well said. Yes. (laughs) Thank you so much for your time. Yes, thank you, Jody. And we'll let you know for, when we get thanks this. Thanks for the invitation. It was fun. When Darkness Falls by Jody Culls. We'll begin our excerpt reading with the prologue. And uh, we just want to warn you that the story switches viewpoints fairly often. So this particular um, point of view I'll begin with is Kate. Wake up! The voice pierces my sleep fog, accompanied by a hand shaking my shoulder. I have no idea how long I've been out. Three days in transit meant I was comatose the moment she gave me permission to sleep. And even though the urgent tone she's using alerts me on some level that I should pay attention, I struggle to bring my brain back online. I've never done this kind of trip before, and so far, overcoming jet lag seems akin to trying to focus in a Monday morning staff meeting after a three-day holiday bender. Her voice is steady, but as my eyes begin to focus, I see her movements are anything but. She's driving too fast, steering with her knees, bouncing us across the rough terrain, The motion of her hands grabs my attention as I try to force sense into what she's doing. She takes the SIM card out of her phone and cracks it in half. 
then rolls down the window and tosses both pieces. I watch in groggy fascination as her phone follows the SIM card. Then she reaches into the bag between us, pulls out an iPad, and with a mighty heave, smashes it onto the dashboard. This brutal act of technological homicide sends a jolt of adrenaline through me, finally waking me fully. Now my brain can begin to categorize her odd behavior and zeroes in on a possible reason. The way she keeps looking in the rearview mirror seems to be the trigger. I turn to investigate, my view briefly captured by Pappas and his wide, wild eyes staring at me. I had forgotten he was there. Looking further through the rear window, I see a truck bearing down on us, crammed with men hanging over the cab. They all seem to be yelling, and for a full second or two, I try to make out what they're saying, before something clicks, and I realize it's sort of irrelevant. The guns they wave illustrate enough of the story. Becca's viewpoint. Stay calm. Oh, God. Take a deep breath. Oh, God. Remember the training. Oh, God. The voices in my head keep this mantra repeating every three seconds like a metronome. And there are at least six other voices in there screaming mindless fill-ins whenever there's a moment of silence, crying, praying, and huddling in the proverbial corner repeating, This can't be happening. I glance in the rearview mirror. Five hundred yards. I can see Pappas's face in the mirror, clearly panicked as he mumbles to himself. He and I shared a few words before I woke Kate up, confirming we both thought the same thing about the truck in pursuit. Now he looks like he's about to cry as he fingers the medallion around his neck. Methodically, I destroy my electronics, and in spite of the situation, a small part of me cringes at the remains of my much-beloved iPad shower onto my lap. Out of the corner of my eye, I see Kate turn to look behind her. Then I hear her gasp. Well, that got her attention. She spins back around with terror in her eyes, and I know our time is quickly evaporating. You have to help her. The still voice instantly quiets all the others, and I feel momentary thankfulness to have something else to focus on. Her terror is much more manageable than my own. Kate, I need you to listen to me. I glance over and see that her eyes are lasered in on mine, but I'm not sure how much we'll get through. You need to follow my lead. These are probably not terrorists. Probably they're just businessmen. They're probably not going to kill us. They'll just wave their guns and yell a lot. Do what they say. It's probably only about money, so be ready to give them whatever you have. That's a lot of probabilities, I knew. I glance in the mirror again. 300 yards. Kate's eyes are still wild and she's starting to hyperventilate. Give her a job. The scarf flapping in her lap gives me an idea. Kate, put your scarf on. Keep it over your head. Try to keep your head covered at all times. I follow my own advice, rip the scarf off my neck, and one-handed, get it quickly adjusted, a move I could do in my sleep after all these years. After a pause, she starts moving mechanically. I reach for the bottle of water at my side and take a long sip, knowing it could be a good while before I get another chance. When she finishes with the scarf, I hand the bottle over to her, even though the drink I took didn't even begin to touch the dryness in my throat, nearly choking me. Now take a drink. Go ahead and finish what's left. I root around under my seat to find the other bottle I brought and throw it to Pappas. He starts drinking wordlessly. 
150 yards. The part of my chest housing my frantically beating heart actually hurts. I can't believe my voice sounds so calm to my own ears. Okay, Kate, they're almost here. Remember, it's probably just business. They'll get in trouble with their bosses for roughing us up without cause. So don't give them cause. Do what they say. Follow my lead. It'll be all right. Just try to keep remembering that our main goal is to stay alive. Trying to keep her calm has helped me block out a fraction of my own terror. But when I see the truck is only 50 yards away, so close I could see the glimmer of sweat on the driver's forehead. The fresh surge of adrenaline makes my legs go numb. Oh God, oh God, oh God. What I've told her is true, usually. But there's always a chance these guys are religiously motivated or out for a joyride instead of a paycheck. In either of those cases, there's nothing I could have said that would have prepared her. Amal's point of view. My hands are sweating. This isn't my first time, not even my fifth. But it's the first time I've been in charge, and the weight of Umar's expectations feels heavy on my shoulders. I'm only in charge on a trial basis, and the memory of the violent death of our last leader makes my stomach drop. I wipe my hands one at a time on my pants and keep my gun pointed in the general direction of the car we're chasing, hoping my driver doesn't notice. It wouldn't inspire confidence. And if Omar has taught me anything, it's that this game is about nothing if not confidence. Something on the rear window of the car flickers in the sun, the sticker the government mandates foreigners to display. We pay a kid to sit at the gas station by the highway out of town and call us when one of them passes without a convoy. Not many do. Few are that foolhardy. But every so often, when they think the threat has died down, that phone rings again and we're in business. I wonder who it is this time. My first attempt at kidnapping was Korean Christian missionaries. That was a horrible introduction. Umar killed every last one after questioning them. Korean Christians never pay, he'd said angrily. They like to suffer, think it gives them a better place in paradise. I am happy to oblige. As he walked away from their still twitching bodies, he wiped the blood off his long knife, shaking his head at me in disgust. Not at the violent act he just perpetrated, but at the waste of a golden opportunity for gain. It was the first time I'd seen my childhood friend for who he had truly become during our time apart, and it frightened me more than I can say. Since then, I've wondered if the Umar I once knew is even still in there, cowering somewhere behind all that violence and anger. Last year, we kidnapped a carload of Spanish engineers. That was a really profitable job, though one died from an infected bullet wound when we shot him trying to escape. But it wasn't profitable enough for Diaji. At least, that's what Omar said when he explained why he'd shot Musa, a man who'd given Diaji more than 10 years of faithful service. As everyone in this business knows, Omar had spouted, strutting in front of the man as Musa's body lay still on the ground in front of them. Spaniards and Italians always pay. Even one of them dead means millions fewer in payout for Diaji. Out of the corner of my eye, I see my driver looking at me for direction, and I realize I've let my mind wander too long, something Umar is always chiding me about. So I raise the gun in my hands, shout, Allahu Ekbar, as loud as I can over the lump in my throat, and I tell him, it's time. Here we go. Matt's Viewpoint The ringing phone startles me from the nightmare. 
dreaming about Carolyn again. Big surprise. Fifteen years later, you'd think my subconscious would come up with a new scenario with which to torture me. At least I wasn't yet in the kitchen when the ringing woke me. At least I didn't wake up crying. The sweat on my chest is already cooling as I fumble around for my phone. I knock it to the floor with sleep-numbed hands and have to feel around for two more rings before I finally find it. 3.12 a.m. and a blocked number. Not uncommon in my line of work. And unfortunately, whatever the hour, it must be answered and swiftly dealt with. Hello? My voice is gravelly, so I clear my throat. Hello, is this Matthew Sullivan? Matt, I corrected automatically. Who's this? My name is Amal. I have your sister Rebecca and your colleague Catherine. Part of my brain is still fighting off the nightmare, while another part is expecting someone from work or maybe a reporter looking for a comment on some new scandal, so I struggle to make sense of the slightly accented words coming through the phone. I'm sorry, what did you say? My name is Amal, Mr. Sullivan. I'm calling from North Africa. I have kidnapped your sister, Rebecca Parker, and your colleague, Catherine Wade. I would appreciate if you would get a pen and write down my terms so that we can discuss them the next time I call. Chapter 1 moves slightly back in time and begins from Kate's perspective. Nuxshot International Airport, 2.43 a.m. I am not in Portland anymore. The Islamic Republic of Mauritania screams in large block letters across the top of the paper I'm clutching tightly in my sweating hand, giving me 72 hours permission to be in the country. I'm surprised at how much of an ominous feeling I have just seeing the words Islamic Republic. I've been told I'll have to present myself to the local police station if I stay longer than 72 hours. But if all goes well, I'll be crossing into Senegal long before that deadline hits. I'm not usually prone to anxiety, but neither do I habitually pass the wee hours of the night jockeying for position with a plane load of Muslim men taking turns ogling me. For the first 30 or so minutes of the flight out of Casablanca, I worried over how many men stood in the aisles, chatting animately with no sign of the usual announcement telling them to sit down. Suddenly, I realized Arab men congregating probably wasn't the stress point for this flight that it would be in my own country. No sooner had I had that revelation than I was truly shocked by a man across the aisle from me, surreptitiously lighting up and taking a quick puff before dousing the cigarette in his coffee cup and smashing it into the sick bag. I was so startled by that episode that when we finally landed and literally half the plane stood up and started getting into the overhead compartments before we even stopped taxiing, I felt a little jaded. After deplaning, I found myself on the open tarmac, with ours the only plane in sight. I noticed one rather lackadaisical guard smoking and, ostensibly, making sure no one skipped passing through immigration, which I gathered occurred through the doors of the slightly weathered building everyone was headed toward. There were two other women on the flight who I thought I might try to follow, but when I started to get close, their male companions boxed me out quite purposefully, as if worried my evident westernism might rub off. At least that's how I interpreted it. It's amazing how active the imagination can get when you understand nothing going on around you and have no one to talk to. Not to mention the countless unsettling scenarios at airports just like this one that I can easily recall to mind. 
weaned as I was on a steady diet of Jack Ryan and Jack Bauer. I'm trying to follow the instructions I was given. I didn't wear anything with an obvious American logo. My shoulder-length blonde hair is tied up. The scarf I bought half-price at the rack is draped casually around my head. That purchase was easy, but I spent the better part of two days trying to find clothes in Portland that matched the long and loose, over-the-tush guidelines I'd been given. I'm not making eye contact with men lest they think I'm propositioning them. It's amazing how hard that is. I grew up in the make-eye-contact-so-they-know-you-see-em part of the world. Plus, it's easy to bump into the guy in front of you when you're looking at your shoes. I try to keep my eyes down, looking up only when necessary to make sure I'm still moving toward what I hope to be the right booth. I figure I've got a 50-50 chance since there are only two lines, but the soldiers with big guns glaring at me don't make me feel extremely confident. I've seen plenty of guns on TV, but wow, there's something, I don't know, louder maybe, about seeing them up close and personal, especially when the men wielding them have stern faces and are garbed in unfamiliar uniforms in a region known for disappearing people. The heat is oppressive, but worse still is oppressive sweating bodies in an enclosed space because of that heat. I'm used to a culture that spends about a zillion dollars a year in deodorant. I'm also used to a bit more in the way of personal space. Matt told me I shouldn't need a headscarf right away. But what was the phrase the State Department was always using? Out of an abundance of caution. I'm glad I didn't listen and pulled the scarf on as the plane descended. That's strike two for Matt after the ludicrous routing he sent me on, flying from Portland to Chicago to Washington to Paris, down to Morocco and then over to Mauritania. Hefty layovers in each, the better part of an unendurably long three days. I wonder if he'll earn strike three tonight or if there will be a grace period until tomorrow. The two women I was keeping my eye on are fully covered, and I watch them disappear into a tent, which I can only assume is for private screening. I hope they don't think I'll go willingly into one of those. I can see beyond the bars and soldiers that there's a crowd of people waiting. More women out there, thank goodness, but again, all of them fully covered. At least they're not all dressed in black. The fabric seemed to be a wide variety of bright colors and clashing patterns. Finally, I make it to the front of the line. I shift forward and hand over my passport and visa paperwork. The visa briefly sticks to my hand owing to both my stress sweat and the oppressive heat, and I give a small smile to the official as I peel it off. I've done this before, gone through immigration lines, but never with a soldier armed with a machine gun standing close by. The official looks up and gruffly speaks in what I assume to be Arabic. How in the world do you answer politely without smiling or making eye contact? I fail on all fronts, but manage to say, I'm sorry, I only speak English. He makes what sounds like a derogatory remark to the gun-packing soldier, then turns back to me and says, Purpose? Relieved to have an answer to this question, I boldly say, Tourism, hoping he doesn't see through the bald-faced lie. After all, what is there to visit in the middle of this backwoods, godforsaken desert? Even Senegal's a step up as far as I could tell from the dossier one of the junior reps prepared for me. The official finishes whatever security screening he deems appropriate, which mainly seems to consist of snooping at the few stamps I've earned, and clangs his stamp down on a fresh page. He passes it back but doesn't look up, leaving me to wonder what I'm supposed to do next. The soldier next to him takes pity on me and points toward the appropriate exit with the business end of his giant weapon. 
I was told to bring only a carry-on, and I'm glad I followed that instruction. I'm hanging on to it for dear life as I begin to scan the room. Almost immediately I catch sight of a pale face that easily stands out among the crowd. I've never seen it in person, but we've said hi a few times over the years on Skype. I knew I was tense, but I didn't realize just how freaked that little immigration scenario made me until my body literally unclenches as we make eye contact. She winds her way over to me, and I lose track of her as she passes through a group of women hugging and chatting loudly. With her head down and her hair covered, she fits right in with them. She pops out of the group right in front of me and with a big smile says, Welcome to Mauritania. For a second, we do that awkward, I don't really know you, so we probably shouldn't hug dance. But then she leans in and gives me a hug anyway. She reaches down and grabs my carry-on and says, Let's get out of here. We can talk in the car. She turns and heads toward what I can only assume is the exit. I follow as closely as I can, wishing for one of those child leashes Matt and I are always making fun of as I lose sight of her a few times in the crowd. I thought it was hot inside, but when we finally are able to burst through the doors, the fresh air is something akin to what I imagine it feels like inside an oven set to broil. A scrum of taxi drivers start yelling the second they lay eyes on us. As if... She waves at a large black man standing beside a car, and the taxi drivers melt away, looking for new opportunities. Arriving at the car, she hands him my bag and heads for the driver's seat. I don't know what the protocol is here, so I start heading for the back seat, but the man heads me off by opening the front passenger seat for me. I give him a small smile and get in. Phew, she exhales loudly. Always nice to be back in the car. She looks across at me and smiles as she puts the car in gear. You made it. I laugh a little. Thank you. I'm so relieved to finally be here. I'm ready to kill your brother. I feel like I've been run over by a truck. She gives a little half chuckle. Believe me, I know the feeling. She doesn't appear at all phased as she dodges taxis and cars and crowds of men to get out of the airport, speaking briefly in a language I don't recognize to another man with a big gun who laughs and raises the barricade. Just as I would have expected from all of Matt's stories about his heroic world-tromping, do-gooder sister. It's funny how his description changes based on how he's feeling at the time. Sometimes it's an affectionate reference to Super Beck. Other times he rolls his eyes in irritation and refers to the size of the stick up her butt. But he never speaks about her without me realizing she's the most important person in his life. He sure will get on smashingly and can bond over our do-gooder lifestyles. I'm not so sure about that prediction, but a couple weeks at my old pay scale will be extremely helpful in keeping said new lifestyle in the black. I try looking out the window as we leave, but can't really make anything out in the darkness. Even on what looks to be the main road out of the airport, there isn't much in the way of public lighting. Must not be high on the agenda of whoever it is that runs this place. I feel a slight twinge of concern that I didn't do more research before arriving. It is an Islamic republic, after all. I was just too busy doing other things to prepare, I try to justify to myself. Luckily, Becca breaks into my thoughts before I can let myself get too worked up. We can't head out in the middle of the night, so I'm going to take you to some friend's house to get a couple hours of sleep. But it's best if we get going right at dawn. I'm sorry about that, but it's safer, and you can sleep in the car on the way. The offer of sleep makes me weak with relief. Mm-hmm. 
great story. I wish we had time to read more. I'm anxious to know what happens next. If you're like me and you want to know the rest of Kate, Becca, Matt, and Amal's story, you can order When Darkness Comes on Amazon. And if you'd like to connect with the author, you can find Jody on Facebook at J-O-D-I-C-O-W-L-E-S. We'll post a link on Becky's website. And that's it for this podcast. Thanks for listening. Until next time, happy reading and happy holidays. Thanks for listening. You can find more of Becky Lyles under the pen name Rebecca Carey Lyles. Her most recent novels, Winds of Wyoming and Winds of Freedom, have both won awards and made the Amazon bestselling list. Steve, well, he just really needs to get his stuff published. If you have comments or suggestions, send them to story at beckyliles.com. Tune in next week for more tall tales and fun fables at Let Me Tell You a Story.